0: We're continuing our sermon series on Hebrews this evening. And uh, the passage that Jeff's going to be preaching on in a short while is from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 12. That's on page 1204 of the Church Bibles. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. If they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised.
1: Well, as you've heard, we're looking at um, uh, the book of Hebrews. If you keep the the book open in front of you, we'll try to um, get through as much of the the material that we can. I think you'll agree that it's um, quite a large section, and it's not my purpose to uh, say everything, otherwise we would be here a very long time. I'm sure you wouldn't be pleased with that. Um, winning and losing have been increasingly influential in determining both success and failure and shaping our thinking, indeed, our whole culture is shaped by that increasingly just think for a moment from an early age we are trained indeed I would almost say pressurised in the values of competitive sport and the importance of winning supremely or of passing our examinations parents are willing to sacrifice Money, time, vast amounts of energy in order for their children to do well. Last year I remembered a barbecue talking to two very attractive young girls, 16 years of age, who had just had the results of their GCSEs, both from public schools. And between them, they had 26 GCSEs. That's 13 each, by the way. The interesting thing was, one of them, in the course of me talking to her, said, but I'm really disappointed that she had ten stars, A levels, uh, A's in GCSEs, uh, two ordinary A's and just one B. And if I was to slightly interpret her comment, it was that there might actually be somebody else who just did a little better than her. And you can't help but wonder if that is the subculture even of a good school, that it's not only that you are to perform well to your ability, but better than others. It's the air that we breathe. It's the way that we think. Success tends both in popular, particularly city culture, To be given a largely wealthy orientated meaning. Millions of people tonight will be watching their televisions and they'll want to know who is hired rather than who is fired. That's the culture. Hiring and firing. However, This is a sort of a major symptom, almost a disease one might say. The illusion is this, that success is something added to a person rather than something that grows out of a person. In our thinking, even unconsciously, we're at church tonight is success what you have or what you have made quite legitimately or is it essentially intrinsically success who and what you are and that is always the counterculture when we look at scripture and we think of the prevailing atmosphere in which we have to live and ultimately die a major symptom then I wonder if you've got that sentence of this disease is the illusion that success is something added to a personality rather than something that grows out of a person material prosperity without spiritual prosperity in the conclusion of the bible is therefore a curse And not a blessing. We would want to strive for both. Sure. But often the one will gain mastery over the other. So it has been dubbed by people outside the church. Affluenza. The global pandemic has been here for a very long time. We breathe it. And we take it in. We strive for it. Yet somehow the success spoken in Scripture is this bountiful shalom of God, that sense of well being. It has a multiple meaning. It has the word, obviously, peace. It has friendship. It has common grace as well as saving grace. It has well being. Prosperity, health, luck, kindness, salvation. That is this big word. And as we entrust our lives to Almighty God, that blessing becomes more real, more evident. Perhaps not so much self-consciously, but as people look on our lives and see our priorities and discern the way that we live, and the issues we're willing to let go for the greater good. And into that, we have this heading, the danger or the warning against falling away, of being sidetracked down blind alleys into dead ends, and forfeiting the blessing of God. think of this uh, reading and uh, the heading there as it is in Hebrews 5 and verse 11, warning against falling away, this whole section is, is difficult with that sort of background introduction as to how we define, how we can understand what is success or failure. And the Bible doesn't use those terms. It speaks in terms of maturity, of going on, of life in its fullness. It's, it's difficult because it has been misunderstood particularly by both sincere believers and sensitive believers. Sincere believers have taken two different views on this. There is the, uh, the view, for instance, once saved, always saved. The other view, it is possible for you to lose your salvation. The possibility, as it's called, of falling from saving grace. Now, it would be interesting if there was an open discussion here as to how you see that. The the danger of the one is that we may always struggle with assurance. Am I truly a believer? If I can think that and do such things, how can I really be a Christian? That's one issue. The other is that someone says, well, the deed is done. I've I've signed the line. I'm okay. I can live as I like and do as I like. The one is insecure, the other is presumptuous. And then temperamentally, whichever of those some people embrace, some people are of a more sensitive nature and will always tend to look in upon themselves, be somewhat introvertish and question their motives. A key verse, therefore, is is important in this whole issue. And I'm not even scratching the surface on uh, some of these um, implications. In chapter 6 and verse 12, it's the concluding verse that we have. It's it's quite interesting, isn't it? When you think of all those doctrinal, theological issues, the summing up verse in Hebrews 6 and verse 12 we're reading, we don't want you to become lazy. Isn't that interesting? But, we do want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. Now keep in mind, that I suggest that's a key verse and we'll make reference to it in a moment, but keep in mind the big picture. The big picture in terms of what we've thought of success or failure, the terms are different. It's progress, it's growth, it's fruitfulness, it's self-sacrifice, it's maturity. It's an altogether different reference point. So we're going to have three negatives and one positive. The first is this. In chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, it's the problem of ignorance. The problem of ignorance. Which, in the summing up verse, seems to stem surprisingly, I say to you, from laziness. We do not want you to become lazy. Spiritually, morally, doctrinally lazy. But st- stay with, with this text. Look at chapter 5 and verse 14. The, the comparison between an infant and someone who's an adult. So verse 14. But solid food is for the mature. Who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. There's a sense that discernment becomes a byproduct. And maturity is seen by others. In other words, quite simply, it may seem a harsh thing to say that instead of laziness, instead of sluggishness, Instead of dullness of hearing, it's as if the writer in the Spirit is saying to the people who confess Christ, don't you think that it's time that you grew up? I wonder if you have occasion to say to to your children, at a certain point, with certain behavior, where your expectation legitimately is better than what they're doing, why don't you grow up? If you want me to treat you like an adult, behave like one. Laziness, sluggishness, dullness. The, this, is, this is a one-liner from verse 14. Solid food is for the mature. I did something today. Um, we were serving hot dogs and burgers, and um, this young man comes in, with the prettiest little 10-month baby, and she wants a hot dog. I said, I'll take her. So I took her. She ate... A hot dog. Now, if I said to that mother with this young child, "Why don't you give?" I can't remember the child's name actually because I snatched her away. Um, Why do you have a hot dog? Why don't you eat a big burger? Well, of course that's ridiculous. However, what the writer is saying is, if you have lived such a long time, and if you have embraced Christ. Where is your appetite? Where is your appetite? Why don't you grow up? Solid food is for the mature. Milk is for the immature. It may be perfectly legitimate for a 10-month child, but not for a 10-year believer, or more or less. Secondly, the problem of immaturity. The problem of immaturity. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Yes, We we, we need to be established in the basics. And there are six of the basics that are highlighted there. But then having been established, we've got to go on. If, If in the first he's saying, why don't you grow up? The second he's saying, why don't you move on? Why have you got stuck? What are you doing? Now, I don't know how you feel about that. Solid food is for the strong. Progress is for the mature. A solid foundation makes you secure. So chapter 6, therefore, in the light of that, let's leave the elementary teachings about Christ. It doesn't mean abandon them. But having been taught these, let's make progress. Let's grow in grace. And so he says at the end of verse 3, and God willing, we will. We will do so. We're going to make progress. Go on to maturity. Go on to maturity. That's what you have in verse 1. Now let me give you a thought. Most Christians, do question this, in your mind if you think it's right, are between us. I did a spell check on this and it didn't like it, but I, there it is. Most Christians are between us in two ways. In a positive way and in a negative way, which we're going to explore together. Stay with me on this now. Think about this and and think about yourself and nobody else. Let's illustrate it uh, positively for a moment and just turn to Philippians. And then we'll come back to um, uh, Hebrews. Philippians 1. This is the classic um, betweener of a Christian, of a believer. Philippians one 21-23, page 1179. Paul is saying, and you're, some of you will be familiar with the King James version. Says, "I'm twixt between." So the actual word is used, it isn't here, but the, the meaning is nonetheless the same. Philippians one twenty one. For me, this is the classic, isn't it? For me, for me, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour. For me, yet what shall I choose? Now he's the he's the in between. He's the he's the betweener at this point. I do not know. It's a bit of a dilemma here. I am torn between the two. He's a betweener. I desire to be part and to be with Christ. He's not depressed or anything like that. He's just saying this is this is this is something great which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and so on and so forth. It's the classic positive betweener. I was relating this um, uh, to to the elders on Wednesday evening, and um, uh, just making this comment. When that great leader and teacher, David Watson, was diagnosed with Bowel cancer, and subsequently died of it. And though there were people in the church that said, "Well, you can go uh, private, he says, no, I'm going to queue up on the NHS, just like everybody else. Why should I be different? He's a man of immense conviction. And John Wimber gave a prophetic word that he was to be healed. And he died. And he knew that he wasn't getting better. And instead of being disillusioned by this prophecy... He said this in my illness. It's in that book, Fear No Evil. He said, I have learned, I have learned, instead of being willing to go to heaven and wanting to stay on earth, to wanting to go to heaven, but willing to stay on earth. There is a tension healthy or diagnosed with cancer. There is a tension. But what we know for the believer, this betweener is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. Most Christians are betweeners in two ways. That's a very positive one. And at this point it's good to have a positive note. But there's also a negative one. Come back to um, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1 and, and these verses. You see, the truth is that the believers, as there is this constant reference to the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, are the classic between us in this way. They'd come out of Egypt, but they hadn't entered Canaan. They'd come out, if you like, of slavery and oppression, but they hadn't entered into the liberty and the freedom and the joy and the bounty of the children of God. Sometimes that is a miserable state to be in. Sometimes the promised rest, six times mentioned in chapter 3, has eluded them. They are ill at ease, they are agitated. This blessed shalom has eluded them, though they confess Christ. No liberty and joy. Interestingly, and this is the last reference, turn to Galatians where Paul makes a confrontation of this classic betweener. Uh, It's Galatians 3. Don't forget what we're saying. This is Galatians chapter 3, verses uh, 1 to 3. We're staying with this phrase. Most Christians are between us. You decide which you are, the positive or the negative. We're saying that here, the writer to the Hebrews is saying to these people, yes, you come out, but you aren't entered into the promise. Yes, you believe it, but it's eluded you. And so, Galatians 3, 1 to 3. This This is the sentence. Paul faced this betweener syndrome. That plagues Christian people to this day. Look how he does it. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified? Now, he says, I don't want to get into any arguments, but tell me this. Look at verse two. This is cutting the chase, isn't it? I would like to learn just one thing from, just one thing now, that's enough. Just one. It's this. Here's the bottom line. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? How did you become a Christian? By believing this transforming gospel revealed in Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit or church attendance and being nice? So, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, okay, no, we've come to faith like that. Yes, but now living the Christian life as if you were not a Christian at all, as if you didn't need the Holy Spirit, as if you've got it all. You see, that is that is the, be, the betweener syndrome that plagues people. That somehow there ought to be fruitfulness and progress and blessing and somehow we slip back so quickly. Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal, live out your Christian life by human effort? I say to you, that is a miserable position to be in. It's the in-between. And it's not nice. Which are you? Don't answer for anybody else. Which are you? We're all in-between us. But which? Come out of slavery of Egypt but just are wandering aimlessly like the children of Israel. Let me read something to you that I picked up in the course of preparing this sermon. It's this. See see if you can take it in. We live in deeds, not years. In thoughts, not breaths. In feelings, not figures on a dial. We should count time, our time, by heart throbs. He, she, most lives who thinks most, feels the noblest, acts the best, and he whose heart beats quickest actually lives longest. Life's but a means unto one end. and That end is God. He's the end of the journey. Some of you, just out of the sheer weight of years, might be nearer. But who's to know? Who's to know? We're all in between us. Let's come to a third um, negative, and we can end, finally, on a a positive. Galatians 6, 4 to 8. And this is where now we get to the very heart of this uh, dilemma. And it is the problem of apostasy. Just make one comment, Um, and it's this whether we, we could use the word the unpardonable sin or apostasy, the sin of which there is no forgiveness, we could say this, and it's important. It's not something accidental. You can't do this accidentally. But something persistent that has its roots in a rebellion against Christ. That the person who has Gone too far is the person who doesn't even care anyway and would never even give a thought to it. That's the point. And if some of us are prone to be hard on ourselves, the spirit would say, I have done a work of grace in you. I have much more to do, but now trust me and follow me. If, if you want a good commentary, this is a real classic in the book of Hebrews. It's not too expensive. It's just um, 9.99, dollars 99 and um, I think that would be money well spent. This is what the commentator says, and I would almost trust him more than myself. Just let me read this paragraph. Try to take this in. There are clear hints at this point and elsewhere in the letter that doctrinal ignorance and spiritual immaturity have led to serious disasters in this church. Some believers who made an apparently excellent beginning in in their Christian lives are now not merely chronic invalids or spiritual casualties but have become fierce opponents to the Christian gospel. Understandably, some members of this church may have become worried about the destiny of apostates. And the writer finds it necessary in the course of his pastoral involvement to say something about those who have not only drifted away, chapter 2, verse 1, but fallen away, (reference in chapter 3. But have now hardened their hearts, become active rebellious against the way of Christ. In describing these sad apostates, the letter mentions three characteristic features. So if you want to know about apostasy or apostates, you would have highlighting at least these three things. One, they reject God's Son. Second, they despise God's gifts. And third, they forfeit God's blessing. Let's look at these very quickly. A, they despise God's gifts. Why does he say that? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. Uh, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the coming age, if they fall away. You see, it's this. Having received light, they now embrace the darkness. Having shared the Holy Spirit, they now resist the Holy Spirit. And the writer comes to this again uh, in, in, in chapter 10 and verse 29, where he says this. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him? And who insults or grieves the spirit of grace? And it's a question. Secondly, apostates reject God's Son. You see in verse six, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because they their loss, because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all, of, all over again. And subjecting him to public disgrace, crucify him, crucify him that 's almost inconceivable to be isn 't it? They turned to the crucified Christ once now they turn from him, and thirdly, they forfeit god 's blessing. You have that in verses seven and eight, and what you have here is 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 what you have here is that the land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and produces a crop, crop useful for those for whom it is found, receives God's blessing. So it's, if you could use a different analogy, the same sun that brings life can also create arid wilderness. This pastoral warning is brought to a close with a parable. God's blessing on both the harvest and a garden overrun with weeds. What's the difference? The difference between cultivating and not, taking our opportunities and not, cultivating the fruit of the Spirit or the bitterness of rejection. We are not among those who are to forfeit the blessing and so the writer now says, I think I've said enough. And so verse 9, even though we speak like this, and, and parsley is almost a sense of hesitation and reluction. There you are, I've said it. Now please pray about it. Let's do it together. So he says, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. Now he had to say that. And this comes to the positive thing. Uh, Fourthly, verses 9 to 12, the prospect of better things, greater things, glorious things. What things? Well, what a surprise. Just let the, the, the verses speak for themselves. In verse 10, surprisingly, your work. God is not unjust. Verse 10, he will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people. You know, it's the sort of language like this. Lord, I don't remember doing that for you. I can't, I can't even think that I did that. And he's surprised. You know, in as much as you did it for the least, you did it for me. Other people wouldn't touch them with a the barge pull. You were willing. Other people crossed over the other side. You didn't. You're willing to be inconvenienced in all sorts of ways. Using your car to give a lift. Being involved. Opening your home to a hospital. All those things. You say, well, I didn't think a great deal of that. Yes, but I did. I did. I did. I had a flashback with this and thinking about the Sankey's hymns which I was brought up on. There's a work for Jesus none but you can do. None but you. You Uniquely you. Do it. And if nobody sees it, that's okay. That's okay. I hope it's okay with you. It is with Jesus. It's a parable of better things. You know, the greatest advocate of justification by faith was the one who could say, I don't think he was bragging, I've worked harder than all of you. See, it isn't an either-or, is it? You know, I'm a practical Christian, you're a spiritual, I'm a You, What is that about? It's your work, your work, uniquely you. And of course, in verse 10, it's your love, your love, uniquely your love, your kindness. Be kind when nobody else is. And then finally, verses 11 to 12. Well, and, and I hope this is not a disappointment to you because it's almost incredibly practical now. Your perseverance. Your perseverance. You see, look at verse 11. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. Oh, you've started well. Don't flag now. Not now. To the very end. In order... To make your hope sure you have assurance by what you do in the name of Jesus. He's working in you and through you. And so, verse 12. We do not want you to become lazy. What a surprise. Almost an anticlimax. It's hard, isn't it? But we want you to imitate those who, through faith and patience... Inherit what has been promised. Your perseverance. You can't work for your salvation. You know that. But for sure you can't work without it. And your work is often the only demonstration that other people have. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in you. People say, don't they, if you don't use it, you lose it. Quite so. That's exactly it. And if you don't share it, you spoil it. If you hold on to it, you lose it. So there's the one sentence. Go on to maturity go on to maturity that 's how it begins in Hebrews six and verse one it says Go on to maturity keep pressing on keep pressing on and as an expression of that we're going to sing now this song which really is uh, encapsulates and focuses on this theme, in Christ alone. And the service is structured in such a way that we can make our response in these words that are so much a part of the theme that we might confess and then celebrate and enter in afresh to the assurance that we have in the Lord Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light. He is my strength. He is my song.